heavily, I'm a clown. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. This is a show where I have smart Bitcoiners on every single week and get their unique and independent perspectives on the phenomenon known as Bitcoin. Episode 17 today, guys. I got a good show for you. I talked with my friend Connor Brown. He just recently released a piece on getting into simply why Bitcoin has no intrinsic value and is not backed by any underlying commodity. But I'm going to let him tell you guys more about that. This is one you don't want to miss. Let's get to it. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappened1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF. 1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Connor, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm really good. I'm really glad that we have you on the show today because we have big things to talk about. Yeah. And Bitcoin is booming. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm on pins and needles over here. Man, we're going to see what happens next. I'm bullish, man. It's crazy. Uh, I just feel like every time I look at it, it just keeps going up. <laughs> yeah, stuff. so we're at like, we're, we're right on the cusp of 7K right now. Um, it, who knows where we'll be at tomorrow, but just for you guys listening, well, that's kind of our frame of reference. And I was telling this story on Twitter this morning about uh, back when we were in like the low 3K range, I was at a family reunion and I was I had this huge crowd of people around me and I was telling all of them like, you guys need to be buying Bitcoin. And they're all like, oh, I thought Bitcoin like crashed and died. I, like, look at how low it is now compared to how it was before. I'm like, I'm telling you, if you guys, like, and I said and explained to them like all these concepts of sound money and, and I, they, I just got like a bunch of blank stares. I'm like, guys, now is the time to buy Bitcoin. I'm telling you, it is going to be worth a lot one day. There's like I think I think that they all push me <laughs> off, but it's gonna be interesting, you know. The next time I see some of them, and they're like, oh, "How's that Bitcoin thing going?" I'm like, "Well, it's uh, let's see, it's five x or ten x since the last time I told you to get it yeah. or whatever." So yeah, no, it, it's it's a hard thing sometimes, especially with family, because you know you don't want them to feel like you've bought into some delusion, like you're a member of a cult all of a sudden. But yeah, you can't really. And help that's that how in it some feels. Ways. That's how it. Feels. Oh, it totally feels like. Man, I've had some, like, just borderline awkward experiences because, like, you understand how they perceive you, and at the same time, like, there's not really anything you can do to say to them, (laughs) you know, and now you're just kind of waiting on that, like, I told you so moment. I don't know. It'll be funny. I I feel like there's, like, this fine line you have to walk to where uh, you you don't want to, like, be like, hey, grandma, buy this Bitcoin thing and have it lose 50% tomorrow. You know what I mean? Because it could. You know, yeah. it's definitely possible, and you don't want to be like, "Oh, sorry, I lost your life savings, Grandma." <laughs> yeah, you got to make Grandma believe first. <laughs> got to right, really right. harden those hodler hands. Well, I really agree with um, you know Max Kaiser, and, and this came up last week on the show. Max Kaiser's idea that you bef- you should fully understand Bitcoin and cypherpunks before you ever buy your first satoshis. I think that that is our secret to success in the future is making people understand bitcoin rather than like what we had in 2017 where all these people who had no idea what they were getting into uh, were jumping into the market but so enough about me connor i want to hear about you um let's why don't you tell the listeners kind of your your story how long have you been in bitcoin how'd you find out about bitcoin what are you up to right now yeah so uh hello everyone i'm connor brown i am right now a law student at stanford and I actually am more recent to Bitcoin. I got into Bitcoin about, gosh, probably like eight months ago now. And it's wow. been quite a ride. Uh, I initially got into it just because uh, I was, it was like this last summer, a friend of mine was telling me I should get into writing. And he was like a contributor to Forbes. And he was like, yeah, writing's, writing's the way to go. And I was like, I'm pretty useless. I don't really know about anything besides hip hop and video games. So don't really know what I'd write about. And he's like, well, you know, you're in Silicon Valley, so just write about blockchain. That's all the, all the hype. And I was like, okay. And then so I started learning about it, 
And at that point, I didn't even know that blockchain and Bitcoin were related. I like I thought they were two unrelated concepts that I didn't know they went together. That's um, interesting. I could see how you could think that. Yeah. No, I mean, I was like, I guess I just heard all the blockchain, not Bitcoin type marketing without knowing it. But um, so I started learning about it and it just clicked. I mean, I mean, not immediately. At first, it was just kind of a strange thing that I was like, oh, OK. So it's like kind of for payments you know, and then and then it's like the long path of sorting out all the signal from the noise type stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's hard. I mean, yeah. at one point I was down the Bcash rabbit hole for like two weeks. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, at one point I was like really into Ethereum and like, you know, decentralized internet type stuff. And then as I, I learned more about it and I just kept like I, I just kept going over it and it just didn't quite fit together like i didn't quite understand why the payments narrative was like the big thing that bitcoin cash was focusing on or why we need to decentralize everything and then i started learning about money and i realized like there was this big moment in like last october where i like realized bitcoin is money and this matters because it's a monetary shift not a payment shift not like a new app uh, it's a new Absolutely. way of storing value and communicating value. Uh, and when that clicked, and I think it was when I was listening to one of Stefan's, Stefan Lavera's like first podcast, that yeah. was like a big moment for me. And then it's just been full speed ahead ever since. Yeah, Stefan Lavera is awesome, man. He has had so many just fantastic episodes that have helped me better understand. The, like, and, and, you know, I had this episode, I think it was episode 14, uh, where I had Ben Prentice on and him and I really got into the weeds about just how broad um, the Bitcoin spectrum is, like all of these schools of discipline and understanding that you have to have to really wrap your mind around this thing. And it takes a lot of time. You know, you can't just come into the space and expect to understand it tomorrow. Um, you have to really dig into the nuance or else, you know, like you said, you end up going down these weird rabbit holes um, that are that are basically like straw man arguments or like they're, they're like little slices of the big pie. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And and it's so frustrating because I can 100 percent understand why someone gets stuck in that way just because, you know, ultimately they don't have the luxury of time. Like, you know, I'm a student right now and I'm I'm lucky in the sense that I have a lot of free time. And so. I put my classes more on a back burner and just went full speed ahead on Bitcoin and, you know, it was or blockchain that turned into Bitcoin. And that was hours and hours of podcast or reading or whatever it was a day. And, you know, if I didn't kind of make that full circle evolution, and like you said, it is this like wide ranging thing where you're having to learn, you know, history, monetary theory, computer science, cryptography, game theory. I mean, like all of it has to fit together. And it is so difficult <laughs> to yeah, try to, to yeah. try to put it all together um, for someone who has tons of free time. Uh, and mm-hmm. so it's it's so easy to see how people can buy into the, the kind of like the the alluring narratives that you know don't really pan out in practice. You know, if we're being intellectually honest, um, I, I think it'd be fair to say that most people they aren't critical thinkers. Most people rely on others for their ideas about most things. And and that's okay, you know, like, because w- we have division of labor in our society and, and we're expected to focus on a couple of things and be good at those things. But generally speaking, we fall to others, you know, the, the people we consider to be experts in various fields to filter their expertise down to us in a way that we can understand. And I, I think the one of the big problems, you know, with, with Bitcoin and, and the outlying cryptocurrency space quote-unquote and all of this deception that's taken place is that people find somebody that they think is really smart and they say well this guy seems like he's got it figured out and they they just follow all of their conclusions blindly uh and that's how you and and the problem is you know it's very profitable to have audience in this space believing whatever it is that you're selling because you know chances are you you're in on some token somewhere that benefits you by making them believe a certain narrative and and you might even fully believe it yourself um but at the end of the day you're profiting off of other people's ignorance oh yeah no it's it, that's definitely true and i've i've thought about this a lot especially and this ties also back to what you're saying about family members and like like how do you how do you talk to your friends and and people that you know in in the real world and like outside of the bitcoin world about it and, you know, it became really obvious to me that 
there are so many scams and different ways that people try to take your money in the everyday world that, you know, everyone kind of builds up this natural immune system to um, anything that kind of seems like someone like promising something for nothing, right? Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it makes a lot of sense that people so quickly reject Bitcoin just because, you know, it becomes like a scaling solution, basically. Like, there's so many people that are trying to promise you something for nothing, and they're really just scammers, that people build up this natural immunity to things that sound too good to be true. And Bitcoin, in many ways, checks every single one of those boxes that people would traditionally mm -hmm. say, oh, this is just another one of those things. This is um, some thing born on the internet that a bunch of people like randomly believe in, but it actually doesn't have any tangible value and uh, they say it's going to like make everyone rich one day. And, you know, clearly this has all the classic flags of a scam. So, you know, I'm not going to actually be intellectually rigorous about it because I don't have to. It's just like everything else I've encountered that's promising the same type stuff. I'm going to write it off. And, th mm. and that's totally logical just because every other time in their life, it saved them a lot of time and energy. You know, instead of like going through and having to systematically disprove why flat earthers believe what they do. It's just like, you know, you just save yourself time and energy. By I, just... I, I have done that, by the way, and that's a really interesting... <laughs> uh, but that, that's for another time. That's... Yeah. Um, but you you bring up a really good point there. Um, and, you know, on your journey into understanding Bitcoin, I feel like you have to make these these leaps of faith you know across like this chasm of disbelief and misunderstanding like it's almost like a like a looney tunes cartoon or something like you're jump i see like you're jumping across like this grand canyon from pillar to pillar to pillar and each time you jump you have to make like this leap of faith in order to understand this thing you know and, until you get to the point where you can see the big picture yeah. and it's probably really easy there to accidentally you know jump off into the wrong direction and end up somewhere completely completely wrong completely intellectually off base yeah, no, 100%. And that's where, you know, that's where you get like the Bitcoin cash people in some ways that you, you, the people that are willing to be open minded to this new idea and to radically rethink, you know, how we function as a society are also, you're going to get a bunch of like just radical, radically wrong people as well <laughs> in that. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have your, because we're already sort of naturally contrarians. And I think that, or at least like open-minded enough that we don't mind being contrarian. Um, mm -hmm. And then you have people who just like being contrarian to be contrarian. And so, um, I don't know if you, you've seen that Flat Earth documentary that just came out on Netflix. But no, there it's, it's so funny because the Flat Earthers start having conspiracies about themselves. And so they actually fork off basically so there's flat earthers who believe that the rest of the flat earthers are actually conspiracy theorists with, you know, NASA right. or whatever. Yeah. Just because yeah. they're like psychologically prone to just always be naturally contrarian. And that's where yeah. like, which, which further makes the rest of, uh, you know, you can see similar stuff with like what BSV is doing with Bitcoin cash and stuff like that. Like there are people who are naturally prone to being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. And then mm -hmm. it leads to he kind of dirtying the whole <laughs> like ecosystem but yeah i yeah. i think that's a really uh very astute observation about human psychology you know you see it in religion you see it in politics you see it in uh academia you see it in everything i mean you yeah. really really do it's it's normal human behavior to think that you have all the answers and everyone else is wrong or to think you know that there's this great big conspiracy and part of that's probably a product of our society and the, the, asymm the asymmetry of knowledge. Um, there's, there's a lot of gatekeeping. You know, there's a lot of occultic understanding of certain things. You know, like if you're not in the right circles, you're not going to have the information you need uh, to really understand what's going on and why it's happening. And I think that that, that breeds like a natural distrust of, of any organized system of belief. Yeah, no, I think that's true, especially in academia. That's something I've been thinking about a lot in, in the context of Bitcoin, too, is that academia is naturally siloed and naturally hierarchical and uh -huh. that's in my opinion very counterintuitive to like actually developing knowledge or i mean the point of academia is cultivating knowledge for society right like improving our knowledge foundations however you want to put it but you know the the structure of it is really difficult to actually 
formulate new ideas and test them in a way that's productive. And I think Bitcoin is the perfect example. We have something that is challenging so many fields simultaneously and in, in what they previously thought, economics being the most obvious one, uh, but also law, which is what I study. And given the siloed nature of academia, it's so hard to for any one field to fully appreciate what's happening. Um, and, you know, we have one of the largest societal revolutions like emerging before us and there's just radio silence. I mean, it's just, there's nothing on it. And I think that yeah. just kind of speaks to how difficult the system is for actually noticing the things that are important, but it's great at pumping out papers that no one reads that is self-referential mm -hmm. to a small group of peer review people who only care about, you know, some extremely minute issue and some very, you know, obsolete form of, you know, academia. Yeah, yeah. I have one last thing, and then I kind of want to shift gears. Um, but yeah, that's that's. I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, we've become so specialized. Yeah. Um, that we we've sort of lost track of the forest for the trees. Like we can't see the meta anymore. Um, one thing that I spend a lot of time trying to do is I'm always trying to take a step back. I'm a big picture guy. Like that's just how I think, and I have to understand all of the parts and pieces of something before I get to understand like how the system and how it functions. And, and that's just how my brain has always worked. Um, but yeah. All right. So let's, let's shift gears. I want to talk about why we brought you on the show today. Now you just recently published a paper and it's called Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. And that's great. Now, obviously I'm going to have this paper posted down in the show notes below. And I encourage everybody, all of my listeners to go and check this paper that Connor wrote out because it's fantastic. I mean, it's really, really, uh, it's short. It's only a couple pages long, but it's very, very dense. Um, and I think that you guys are going to really love it because this is, this has been a hot topic lately about intrinsic value of Bitcoin, the argument of Bitcoin versus gold, you know, Peter Schiff is coming out and, and talking about all these things about intrinsic value and, and what makes a money money and the commodity behind gold is what gives it its value and, and all of these things. And you took the time to uh, sort of evaluate the meta here and really, really condense down a very interesting perspective on this topic. So tell us a little bit about this paper that you wrote. Yeah, so this, this paper is kind of designed to be uh, a nice little one-off that kind of addresses one of the big arguments that comes out quite often with Bitcoin. Like you were mentioning, this idea of, you know, you hear it on a lot of like, you know, CNBC type shows. Well, you know, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, so it's clearly just beanie babies. And that's kind of like how it's written off, is it doesn't have uh, a use as a commodity. And therefore, because there's nothing tangible, physical, or useful about it outside of money, that it can never be used as money. And it shouldn't, you know, it has no sort of strong foundations is how they'd put it. Um, so this article is designed to be, like you said, it's short, it's quick, it's to the point, um, but it's designed to be a quick article you can kind of send to someone who's making this argument and be like, actually, uh, the fact that it doesn't have, as you would say, intrinsic value uh, is actually a great thing because it allows it to be a pure monetary asset and that the other um, uses that something would have uh, as a commodity actually trades off with it being a good money. And so the best money is the purest money and Bitcoin is the purest money we've ever seen. So we should all like Bitcoin. Yeah, so there's there's so much I want to dive into here. Um, first, I want to I want to touch on the fact that this is a paradigm shift. Bitcoin is absolutely a paradigm shift, and there there has to be a new way of thinking here. It's the same thing that happened, you know, when the internet first came around, and, and people didn't really understand what it was for, how it was going to impact the world, you know, what its purposes were going to be, and they're like, oh, this thing is slow. It, it's not going to scale. You know, you're not going to be able to use this for anything. Um, because they couldn't see the paradigm. And there were some people that could see the paradigm shift coming from a mile away, but they were few and far between. And everyone was stuck in this old model of thinking, this brick and mortar, social, like, you know, when I buy something from somebody, I want to seal the deal with a handshake. You know, there's yeah, no, yeah. who would ever use their credit card on the internet? That's crazy. Uh, and, and over just the last decade, you know, probably the last two decades, but especially the last decade, we have seen our entire society completely transformed by this paradigm shift. And in such ways that even the experts back then, you know, who, who did understand this probably couldn't have even predicted. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And that's actually, you know, the first point in the article. And so the way the article is laid out is it first tries to explain why do people say this argument? I mean, I hear it all the time. So what's the foundations of it? I think that for the average person that, you know, the person you'd see on TV that's talking about it, when they say there's no intrinsic value, they really are just comparing it to the previous things they know. They're appealing to history. And, you know, like I said in the article, this is this goes back to ancient times. Aristotle was talking about the proper money is one that has a good use, you know, um, and it has intrinsic value. And so, you know, it, it, it makes perfect sense. It's a, it's a classic fallacy in the sense that because it happened in the past, it's going to happen in the future. Because all of our previous monies had a physical use outside of trading, then this, any, any future money we have needs to have that as well. And, you know, I I think that when you actually boil down the the purposes of money, none of it requires a commodity base, and it's actually better without it. Hmm. Yeah, so the quote that you had in here from Aristotle, it was, money is, quote, intrinsically useful and easily applicable to the purposes of life, for example, iron, silver, and the like, end quote. And that's, that's profound to me when I look at this in my modern day context, because he wasn't wrong. You know, in in his world, and even up in the up until the world of two thousand nine, you know, when Satoshi released Bitcoin, they he that that statement was not wrong. It was completely one hundred percent correct because everything existed in the in the physical world. There was no such thing as a digital global ledger, you know, powered by encryption and game theory that made it possible to store value. Um, virtually exactly you know not not physically it it, something couldn't exist outside of the physical world it wasn't possible exactly the digital world obviously is brand new and so previously anything that had um a good monetary value you know things that had good properties that they're they're very rare they're durable they're divisible those are already very unique items like there are very few things in the physical world that have good monetary properties and that also means they're going to be rare for other use cases And that means they're probably going to be good commodities. You know, they're going to be useful for certain things um, outside of money, just given the fact that they already have these good monetary properties. And the other thing I guess I want to say is that it totally makes sense just given the fact that when you're moving, and I I was speaking to um, the Bitcoin Observer on Twitter about this, we were talking about there's really two different stages of developing a money, right? First, there's the moving from barter to money for the first time. And then there is moving from a system that already has money to a new form of money, right? And so in that first stage, when you're moving from barter just to your very first money, you're gonna need something with intrinsic value because the the money that gets seeded in that barter phase is gonna be the most saleable good, right? But once you already have a monetary system in place like we do today, then you can shift from a monetary use or a, a monetary system with a commodity use at the bottom to something that doesn't have a commodity system at the bottom because you don't you're past that sort of initial seeding stage in in, in the barter system. Hmm. Hmm. So, and and you mentioned the the transition from from barter to money and then from money to new money and and I really want to uh, touch on that again. Um, I, I had this other thought where. You know, a, a lot of people kind of fall into this this strange understanding where they say, well, we already have digital money. You know, we already have, you can, I can go to, all my banking is digital. I do it all online. Mm-hmm. You know, like, well, why do we need this new technology? And it, and it sort of um, helps, I think, here to go back to history and sort of the history of scientific discovery and invention. And you see this general progression of understanding that's gone over centuries and in some cases millennia you know where it we we look you especially in school you know you learn about these scientists that created these models and and these models best represented their understanding and and that time period's understanding of of concepts that we understand much better further down the line today you know you think about like the atomic model and how that's progressed over the years to our understanding that we have now and and how deep and in depth it is, um, we understand it in much, much greater detail. Or you look at inventions, right? Like the first core, the first car uh, actually had horse reins for a steering wheel because the <laughs> steering wheel hadn't been created yet because it, it wasn't needed, you know, and yeah. they had to take their existing understanding of how you control a vehicle with wheels on it, which was a horse cart, and they used horse reins. Like, well, obviously, this is what you use to, to steer a vehicle. Um, we have... 
this this Bitcoin is like this new emergence of of progression of understanding, progression of scientific method, progression of invention. The same thing that we've seen throughout all of human history. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's really um, what, what I spoke to a little bit uh, later in the article, which is that just because, you know, we've never previously thought about digital money doesn't mean it's a bad thing. And in fact, there are many properties of money that are extremely desirable, but are only possible when something is fully digital, when it doesn't exist in the, in, in the physical world. Um, and that by leaving the physical and moving into this digital realm of money, it frees money to be, you know, as, as good as possible. I think that um, some of the obvious ones are in its monetary properties of scarcity, right? You can't, there is, there is no real thing in the universe known to us that is truly scarce. You know, even the most right. scarce, precious resources are plentiful outside of Earth, right? There's a chance that right. we could mine asteroids. There's a chance that we could find new precious metals, you know, at the bottoms of the ocean. If we can, you know, somehow have a breakthrough and how to mine those, we could, who knows, we could figure out some sort of scientific discovery that allows us to just cook up and, and place atoms in whatever order we want. And then, you know, the the traditional idea of alchemy could be quite real, you know? <laughs> I mean, who knows? And so there's no, t there is no true limit on any physical item. But with a digital item, for the first time, we have something that is truly scarce. And that's our money. That's Bitcoin. Um, there is no thing that has a hard cap on it like Bitcoin does. And the, the other thing that you know, moving to the digital realm allows us is auditability. That not only can you make it truly scarce, but you can verify that it's scarce in real time. You know, I can look at the blockchain and I can see how many Bitcoins are in existence. If someone does find some sort of scientific breakthrough that allows them to start printing gold, right, then I won't be able to know that. There's nothing that, you know, if I'm holding bars of gold, there's no way for me to know that, that, that suddenly... Until your gold starts becoming worth less. Yeah, until the market starts plummeting because someone's flooding it with cheap gold, right? Like, I can't know that in real time. There's no way to, you know, audit my holdings um, in, in relation to the bigger picture. And that, that's really the breakthrough. And this also goes to why I think a lot of, you know, throw it on the blockchain ideas that, you know, other altcoins pitch don't really make sense. Because the beauty of the blockchain is that it allows you to understand your holdings in reference to everything else, right? It's not just that I can have my Bitcoin. It's that the blockchain allows me to know how many Bitcoins are in circulation and know my Bitcoin relative to everyone else's Bitcoin. Because that's what gives my Bitcoin value. Now, if I say throw medical records on the blockchain, you know, my medical records do not care if everyone else's medical records are out there, right? None right. of them are connected. Right. And so the inefficient system of a blockchain is not good um, for, you know, verifying everyone else's records compared to mine or, or something like that. Right. And uh, ho hopefully, you know, for, so for the purpose of our listeners, you, you might, uh, Connor touched on this, but you, you really have to have a deep dive journey into economics and the history of money um, to really understand why scarcity um, is so important because Connor brought up scarcity and said that there was re there's really no such thing as true scarcity with a commodity because it's impossible because we live in you know uh, theoretically an infinitely in expanding universe um, that might potentially at one point run out of energy but we don't we don't know when that is and we we live in such a small like just infinitesimally small portion of that universe that there's more resources than we could ever use in in hundreds of lifetimes out there for us and whether or not gold could potentially be a lot less scarce in the future is is a real possibility um yeah no people talk about mining asteroids and all that type of stuff all the time it's hard to know it's hard to know when any of these breakthroughs would occur but you know it's like a systemic risk to gold having value in the first place so here we are uh, on the cusp of this new paradigm that's being driven by this nascent technology of Bitcoin. And we are the few that understand. And what, in your opinion, where is this going? I mean, what, what does this, what does a future with Bitcoin look like for something like gold? And, and it's high market cap propped up by people that are using it as a store of value commodity money. Yeah, I, I think that the future looks really bright, actually. I think that, you know, for the first time, we can hold our wealth in a way that is truly sovereign, 
that can be taken that can be stored without really any storage costs without upkeep required um, and that we can send that and you know shift that around in novel ways and I think that what that means for previous stores of value is that you know they're gonna lose their market cap gold's gonna get a lot cheaper and right now the market cap of silver is like I don't know if off the top of my head I think it's around 15 billion and gold is like 8 trillion right so you can kind of see at one point gold and silver were competing. I mean, they were like um, really held to be two sides of the same coin in many ways. Gold would be used for you know the larger transactions and silver would be used in, as an everyday medium of exchange and you kind of needed to switch between the two. Once silver became an obsolete monetary technology, right, because we now had paper money and banking systems that allowed transfers that gold previously wasn't able to handle and you needed silver for those everyday transactions at, at the shop or whatever because silver became obsolete from new monetary technologies the market cap of silver dwindled and the really the thing that was propping up silver at that point was uses for silverware and you know other non-monetary uses of silver silver got a lot cheaper i think we can see something really similar to gold that by having a store of value that doesn't require any sort of underlying commodity we can actually unlock all this commodity value. You know, when gold is sitting in a vault, you're not using it because of its commodity purposes. You're not using it because it's good in aerodynamics or, or aerospace technology or medical devices or computer chips. You're not using it because of that. You're using it despite that. And that's a, that's a really important point. When you're hoarding it in a vault, you're not helping or you're, you're not using it productively. There's the opportunity cost. And so when people like Peter Schiff or someone like that speaks to all of these amazing uses that gold has, they're really using them despite that because gold has preferable monetary characteristics that are more desirable than their commodity uses. So now that we have something that beats gold on its monetary properties, then you know we'll be free to use it for its commodity purposes, which means higher quality and cheaper goods um, and, you know, wherever gold is applicable, be it medical or computer, or, you know, those things I spoke about earlier. So I think that that's a really bright future. The other thing I speak about in my article is real estate, that a lot of people store their wealth in real estate um, because it's seen as this, quote, golden concrete. And that, that quote actually came from a, a UBS report that's linked in the article. Um, but, you know, there's these people you know, these the global elite that have millions and billions of dollars and they're looking for a place to safely park their wealth. You know, it's it's difficult to find a thing that really holds its value. And real estate has been like the common thing that people choose to keep their holdings in. Now, the problem is that it leads to these sort of speculative bubbles because even real estate is really artificially scarce. You know, it is scarce based on housing regulations based on lobbying local governments to make it so you can't build more housing. And it has all these second order effects where when everyone's parking their wealth in real estate, you know, it's naturally in their incentives to prevent new real estate from being built. And it's natural and because if more real estate is built, then they get diluted, right? So you have strong pressures on local governments and things like that um, to keep things artificially scarce. Um, the thesis of my article is that when you have a store of value that beats out real estate, beats out gold, then you can kind of unlock those purposes. You can release that pressure and you can have, uh, in, in the example of real estate, you know, much higher quality uh, living standards and access to housing because the market is not being artificially inflated through people parking their wealth in something they don't need. Right? One of the, the great quotes in the article, I think, is that uh, I found this uh, real estate developer talking about, you know, you need the, the, global, uh, the global elite are looking for this piggy bank, basically, to store their wealth, and then looks at the census, uh, and it says, you know, Manhattan, for example, um, like one third of Manhattan is empty, like 10 months of the year, um, just because they are really using these apartments and this, this housing in Manhattan as a place to store their wealth as that piggy bank. So when people have an asset that's even better than real estate, it doesn't have the upkeep, it doesn't have the fees, it doesn't have the 
you know, it's it's not a portable asset at all. You can't break up pieces of a house or anything like that. It's not divisible. When you have a superior money, a superior store of value, you can free up those assets. Housing will get cheaper. Pressure on, on regulatory and zoning laws will get uh, easier. And I think it ultimately looks like a much, you know, better, more affordable way of living for everyone and a better store of value and way of storing your time uh, for the people that need that piggy bank. Wow, so much, so much great stuff there. I mean, I, I just made a ton of notes on that little tangent that you went off on there. Um, I guess maybe it'd be better if I work backwards, yeah. uh, so that we talk about what you what you most recently hit on there. That's the the scarcity of real estate. You know, we're, we're looking at a housing crisis, especially in America, and actually you're seeing it nowadays uh, in a lot of other places outside the world, just because of this expansion of credit, and you're seeing this people using real estate as a store of value, like you said. Just imagine the impacts that that must have on, you know, you look at like Manhattan, the impacts that that must have on the local economy, you know, and, and on the local workforce. And there's like all these people that want to live and work and participate in the economy of Manhattan, they, they have to commute because they can't even afford to live. Like you said, to all of these houses that are just sitting empty, nobody can afford to live there, you know, and, and be a part of this this local community this economy now i wouldn't want to live in manhattan but i understand that there's a lot of people that do you know and, yeah. and the demand is so high uh, even these people who really really want to live there and who might actually be doing very well for themselves they can't afford it they can't get in and those houses just sit empty uh and, and what a waste yeah no it, it's so true i mean affordable housing is really becoming scarce and you know i'm in the bay area and you hear about it all the time, like median home value here is like over a million dollars. I mean, uh, I'm initially from North Carolina and a million dollars there gets you a mansion. Here it gets you mm -hmm. like a one bedroom with no yard. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it is really shocking and it really comes to these pressures. Um, I think that the a lot of people talk about it in the context of gentrification. Um, but, you know, what it really comes down to is people are artificially bidding up these assets because they need somewhere to store their money. And, um, you know, I think what, like what you said, the credit expansion is another thing that we should definitely be cognizant of um, because as this, you know, cheap money starts flowing, it's going to need somewhere to go. And, you know, this is, this goes back to uh, the point in my article, in my article um, where I actually reference Mises and say that Mises would have been a Bitcoiner, you know, because even Mises, the Austrians realized that having this commodity value at the bottom creates distortions throughout the entire economy because you have to take useful things off the market and make them artificially scarce for that monetary purpose. And because um, it, there, it, it has that competing trade-off, you know, you're going to create distortions in the industry that you're choosing uh, to, to hold your money in. Um, so I think, yeah, real estate's one of the best examples there. I, you know, you could make the argument that economic instability brought about by uh, an unsound currency can cause people to hoard all kinds of things, all kinds of useful things like food, water, guns, ammunition. The list could go on and on. I mean, it's not just it's, it, it could be extremely expansive in terms of the impacts that it has on our, our quality of life and our utilization of efficient resources. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you're seeing some of that in Venezuela right now. Um, and Venezuela is also magnified by the fact they have price controls and things like that. I mean, you look at the grocery stores and they're just empty. Um, because when you when you stop having that sort of um, that that rail system for communicating value, when that language of speaking to one another through value breaks down, then you're really in a tough spot and you have to use alternative things that wouldn't really make sense. Uh, but you're just trying to get your hands on anything you can. With Bitcoin now, we don't have to rely on anyone. You know, we can rely on ourselves. It's a decentralized network that covers the globe. And so in that sense, it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, that's the beauty of not trusting it is that you don't have those sort of breakdowns in the system that allow it to uh, really get to intolerable levels and lead to these sort of systemic problems like you see in Venezuela. I'm really glad that you wrote about and, and touched on just now uh, Peter Schiff, because I think Peter Schiff is on the wrong side of history. I think Peter Schiff would have been the guy who was saying that no one's ever going to give up the tried and true candlestick for this newfangled light bulb. Yep. Yeah, no, it's um, it's frustrating. And, and you know, the, sometimes, like, P Peter Schiff, he's, he's a really interesting character, because 
it's he could be such a good advocate for bitcoin it's like it's kind of sad i mean he's a, a pretty charismatic he's a good at arguing but you know he loves his gold and he's you know it, it it becomes one of those things that becomes very entrenched when someone isn't able to swallow their pride and say you know what i was wrong i initially thought this was a ponzi scheme you know my initial immune system to scams kicked in like we were talking about earlier and i truly thought it was a scam i truly thought bitcoiners were delusional but now i understand like this has properties that made me rethink what money is and you know i think that that's a really tough thing for a lot of people and that's going to cause a lot of pain that mentality of well i said it was wrong and i'm going to keep saying it's wrong and the more it goes up the more i'm just going to say it's wrong i mean that's going to be really painful when bitcoin is sitting at 100k and we're sitting back like you know we told you to buy in at a dollar <laughs> yeah yeah hey you look at a guy like peter schiff and um it's it's tough uh for us because you you look at a guy like him and you know he's obviously he's done very well for himself he's very successful it would take a very very small percentage of whatever peter schiff's net worth is in bitcoin to give him a hedge against the fact that he's wrong you know let's say one percent of his wealth uh that that would be extremely beneficial for him in the future in the event that he is completely misreading his understanding of this situation but by not being involved he's only hurting himself the longer he delays his i say inevitable entry into bitcoin yeah and it makes you wonder i mean do you think he's buying bitcoin on the side I, will he ever admit it? <laughs> I think he has to be, right? I mean, he's not... Will he admit it is one he, thing. I think he's got to be... He's He's got to be buying a little bit. Like, he's got to... Like, he's not an idiot. He's got to be diversifying. You, you have to be a fool um, to understand Bitcoin as well as Peter Schiff does and not own any. Yeah. No. You have to be a fool. I mean, and this was... I was talking about this earlier. Um, earlier today, actually. But... You know, just the idea, you know, the Warren Buffett types, the the Charlie Munger types, like, you know, these these great investment titans. The idea that they might think that Bitcoin's a bad investment, right? Or it doesn't make sense or they can't get it. But at the end of the day, they understand diversification. And it doesn't make any sense. Like they surely they understand there's a chance they're wrong, even if it's ten percent, right? Um and in that sense, like, they would need to diversify. It just makes sense. And, you know, that's why it doesn't, it doesn't make this, this the hardline stance against it just seems, it seems silly. And, well, it's interesting, um, the Warren Buffett piece, because, you know, Warren Buffett has always been, in some ways, sort of against diversification. You know, he's always said that I only invest in things I understand. And he mm -hmm. always tells people, never invest in something that you don't understand. Because that's, you know, I think that that's one of the biggest problems with our current equities market is that you have all these people playing amateur investor, investing in things, companies they don't understand, industries they don't understand, and just trying to spread their portfolio as thin as they possibly can against all these different industries and, and hoping that, you know, enough darts thrown at the dartboard eventually hit a bullseye. Um, it's very irresponsible. It's a very irresponsible use of capital. It's extremely unproductive. Uh, it, and it just doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. Um, especially, you know, it reminds me of that scene um, in The Big Short where they're like, you know, he's, he's like at a strip club and the stripper is like trying to tell him like, you know, you should invest yeah. in real estate. And he's like, yeah. oh my God, I'm in a bubble. Like that was the moment. Uh, and I feel like there's so many similarities with... Um, what we're seeing in the equities market right now like my my brother's in high school and his friends are like basically gambling on the stock market with robin hood and like the, the cool thing is to like be a day trader while you're in class and just right. like sell verizon shares or something i mean it's it's really insane and the fact that you know high schoolers are enjoying this and like supposedly making money off of it it's like you know signs of a market top in my opinion but It'll be interesting. I, so I'm really lucky because I came, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like a professional trader or I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just some guy, but I came <laughs> from a background in that, that world before yeah. I found and really got into Bitcoin. I, I was really into trading penny stocks. I was really into speculating, you know, like bottom fishing for these big wins. And I, you know, I had some, but I saw this full gambit of 
personality types and scams and market psychology and all these things play out, you know, like in this much more mature marketplace, even even the OTC market is much more mature than um, than Bitcoin is at this point. And all of these scams, you know, like all these personalities, all of this like like shilling ideas in order to make the few people at the top of the pyramid extremely wealthy at the expense of everyone else. These things are the bread and butter of like the gray market pink sheet stocks world, you know, that that probably guys like your your brother's friends are super into. And it's it's attractive, you know, especially as like a young person who doesn't have much capital. They might be looking at a lot of student debt. Um, they might be living paycheck to paycheck, eating mostly ramen noodles and driving this shitty beat up old car, probably still living with their parents because they can't afford to move out. That opportunity for wealth transfer is very, very attractive, even if you know, you have to throw 50 darts at the dartboard until you hit the bullseye. And hey, I just made 10 grand. Like, yeah, wow, this is amazing. This could be life changing for me if I can just throw enough darts at this dartboard and eventually win big. But at the end of the day, they're just at a casino. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, it's so difficult for someone who doesn't have all that time to put into learning about Bitcoin to distinguish the two because Bitcoin's characteristics at face value seem to be in, in the same vein as, as what you were just talking about. You know, this is just mm-hmm. throwing darts at a dartboard, and the immense volatility is just a sign of how, you know, silly it really is, and how it really doesn't have meaning in the, in the broader scope of things, but this is just like any of those pink sheets that people love to gamble on and occasionally strike it rich, and this is one that's been good in the past, but, you know, it's probably just a Ponzi scheme. I mean, that's what it really looks like from the outside, and then that's when you start to peel back the onion and and see that there's a lot more there so the real problem and and this is the problem that i eventually ran into in penny stocks and why i ended up getting out is that you know historically the way speculation always worked was speculators in certain commodities or industries they were experts like if, if i was like a railroad tycoon and i understood railroads extremely well like like the back of my hand like you know um tag me from Atlas Shrugged, like I was like the railroad king or the queen, right? I would be able to see opportunities where things were undervalued or overvalued in the marketplace, and I would be able to speculate accordingly and use all this extra capital I had from being successful railroad tycoon and and put it in certain places to make it utilized efficiently. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems that I've seen, you know, like in this this equity gambling market, and especially I see this in altcoins, and it's why I I caution people so strongly to avoid this this gambling casino with altcoins, is because when you're a speculator on something and you don't understand what it is that you're speculating on, you have no frame of reference for knowing when it's undervalued and when it's overvalued. And as such, you might make a lot of money, and then you have this extreme period of cognitive dissonance where you think you're really good because you have this feedback loop that tells you that you're really smart and you understand what you're doing, but you don't understand that the money's already been made and the smart money's already gotten out because what you're in is extremely overvalued. It's the same thing with these altcoins, you know, that even if somebody somewhere could come up with a use case for some of these tokens, which I think there really isn't any, if you don't understand what you're speculating on, you're not going to know when to get out and you're going to lose all that wealth that you've, you know, made on paper or even even you might have already turned it into fiat money. You know, you don't have it in something you understand and you're just going to lose it. Yeah, no, exactly. The altcoin casino, it's it's so interesting because it's so you can understand why it's so seductive, you know? Like the 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 promise of the alt season that's just around the corner and these massive gains that you could, you know, pick up in just a few days and it's it's such a, a dangerous game because, you know, when you're betting on Bitcoin, you're betting on other people being smart. You know, you're betting that you understand it and you understand why it's going to change the world. And so you're betting on other people eventually learning and making the smart decision to buy it. When you're betting on an altcoin, especially when you're a Bitcoiner like us, then you know that the only point of buying an altcoin is to sell it to someone else. And so the investment thesis is the complete opposite. Instead of betting on people being smart in the future, you're betting on people being dumb in the future. And that's just so scary. You know, you never want to bet on your enemy being dumb. You want to plan for them being smart. And the you know, altcoins, even when it seems like, you know, they're so undervalued, ripple down 90% or whatever it might be, like, these are massive market caps still. I mean, ripple at 30 cents is still uh, incredibly overvalued. Like, if it's if it's over a penny, it's overvalued. Like, I mean, it has no value. So even for, um, 
you know, something that seems like it's way down and, and this idea that, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. People assume because what happened in the past is going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also is the promise of the alt season that ne- never comes. You know, it'll be interesting um, to see a lot of people, I see it on Twitter all the time, are just banking on, you know, well, you know, load up on your alt bags now because, you know, they're going to pump them alt eventually. And Alt season is coming. Yeah, no, all the time. And, you know, just in the past couple of days, Bitcoin has gained more than any of the alts. And not only that, but it's the most liquid. It's the one that requires the most money to actually move the market. So it's moving the most and it takes the most to move it. And that is crazy for these illiquid things to not be moving nearly as much as the most liquid, the most difficult to change. Such a great point. It, there is no guarantee that that bigger suckers than you are going to come in and pay a higher price than you paid. And it's something that you learn the hard way, you know, when you get involved in, in traditional equities, particularly down at the bottom in the OTC, like I said, yeah. because you see these stocks that are like trading for a hundredth of a penny, right? And you look at this and you're like, oh, I can buy like millions of shares of this for not that much money. And it's like, if this thing goes up to like a dollar, or like five dollars, I'm gonna be stupid rich. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna be able to buy my boss's company and tell him to, you know, take a hike. And they look at the and they and they see all this opportunity. But there is just no guarantee. What they don't understand is that the reason that stock is trading for point zero 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 one cent is because it's worthless. Because it's a money printing scam run by the CEO. You know, used to just move debt around and and give his buddies favors and and it, yeah, no, it's a scam it, it, exactly and. You know, you just wonder when some rant, like you are just at the the whims of the whales, right? Because in all these altcoins, there's going to be this random, you know, there's there's people who are just locked up in like actual contracts that say they can't sell. Um, but you know, once those are once time's up on those, or once they decide, you know, all right, it's it's gone up ten percent, like time to dump. Like I already need to get out, but I'm just going to wait for it to go up a little bit, and then I finally dump. Like you're just at the whims of the whales. You know, and, and that's a really scary place to be. <laughs> and at, at that point, it just, you know, it's not worth it in the sense that you have your Bitcoin. You know that that's not going to be the problem there. And, um, man, it's it's a dangerous game. It's a dangerous game. I would be terrified of losing my Bitcoins and on something yeah. like that. And, and Bitcoin is already such a speculative asset with so much upside potential. It's almost like, why, why are you yeah, being so greedy? Exactly. You know, just put your money in Bitcoin and wait. Just be patient, dude, and you you will get yours. I guarantee it. I mean, if you can't wait for Bitcoin, um, then you really have some time preference problems. I mean, if <laughs> if the two hundred or a thousand x upside isn't enough for you, like I don't know what to tell you, man. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're kind of a lost yeah. cause. Um, now I want to return back to to something that Peter Schiff said not that long ago. He tweeted out that he thinks it's ironic, you know, that all of these Bitcoiners who think Bitcoin is so great and so much better than gold still need gold in order to mine their Bitcoin because it's in all of their chips, you know, that that are powering the, the hash power for the network that keeps the network secure. And it's great that you bring up this point about underutilization of commodity because of the store of value premium placed on gold that makes it less effective in its industrial use case because of its monetary premium. It's like, yeah, Peter Schiff, let us free up all of this unused capital in gold and build more ASICs with it so we can make Bitcoin better. Yeah, like Peter, you're making our point for us. Peter makes such a great argument, you know. Bitcoin is going to actually make it cheaper to secure its own network. Bitcoin's going to act in its own interest and it's going to make an even more secure network by devaluing gold. It's it's really a beautiful system where it goes right back into securing the network that's killing it. And then by making it more secure, it makes it, you know, that that feedback loop continues. It's really a beautiful process he's pointing out. Safety blew my mind when I read his book and he gave me an understanding that the monetary premium from gold comes is like 90% from store of value market. Less than 10% of the annual gold production is actually used in industrial use case. That is insane. You know, it's insane because it flies in the face of everything that you learn in a traditional education that gold is valuable because it's useful and it's useful because it's valuable. You know, exactly. it's, it's just not true. Well, you know, it's, it's split into two different um, categories. Gold is useful as money because of its monetary properties that are distinct from any of its other uses. It just so happens that its monetary properties, you know, 
what makes something a good money is that it's divisible, but it's also durable. You know, it it can stand the test of time. Those things, it's it's um, th there are great monetary properties of gold, and because of yeah. that, we use it as a money. But it also then has those other industrial uses. But I think that that distinction is not really made very often. People don't understand. I, I think that. It's not because it's used as a commodity that it makes it a good store value, but it's because of certain monetary properties. And I think mm -hmm. that this also comes down, this this is kind of an aside, but it's also something that's been frustrating, um, is this idea that money is subjective, you know? And I think that this is something that Peter Schiff also talks about sometimes, is like, mm -hmm. you know, there's a long history of gold, and we've kind of come to the social consensus on gold being good for storing value, and because money is subjective, then, you know, we, it, it's really hard to change that. There's this inertia there. And I think that people mischaracterize it as being subjective, that mm -hmm. money is actually very intersubjective. Money is like mm -hmm. a language. It's good for communicating subjective value, but it's actually um, an intersubjective system that does have true features. You know, there are certain things that make uh, a language, for example something there for communicating our emotional states, good or bad. You know, some languages are highly inefficient. Um, some are much better for communicating ideas. And so although that language is something that, you know, is this sort of vehicle that we can share subjective experiences through, there are certain properties that we can say make a good or bad language. Money is the exact mm -hmm. same thing. Money is a way of expressing subjective value, but it does have true objective characteristics. And it's Durability, fungibility, portability, divisibility, all of those things make it a good or bad money. And I think that it gets lost, that distinction gets lost sometimes, and people say, you know, money's subjective, I believe in the dollar, everyone else believes in the dollar, Bitcoin's never going to work, you know, you lose. I get that all the time. And I think that that, that lacks the nuance there of the intersubjective nature of money uh, and Bitcoin. That was a great caveat that you made there that... You know, gold is great money. Like, yeah. I don't think either of us would sit here and try to say that gold is is terrible as money, or that that it shouldn't be money, or that you know it's it's bad as money. Like, we're not making that argument at all. We're saying, yeah, gold is the best money. It's been the best money for millennia. You know, but Bitcoin is better by orders of magnitude. Yeah, it's old tech, like, and that's why we're because we understand what makes gold valuable. That's why we understand what makes Bitcoin so valuable. And it's like Peter Schiff is is one step below the understanding. You know, it's like he's like, well, well, gold is the best. It's always been the best. It's like, yeah, we know Bitcoin is better. <laughs> we get it. Yeah. Like we understand gold is great. Yeah. And and one of the things and gold can never really compete given that physical nature. I mean, one of the most essential things for money is that it has to be exchangeable. You have to be able to send it to people and trade and anything that is physical must inherently be sent like if i want to trade with someone in europe and i'm in north america any money that's physical has to actually move through a carrier a trusted third party and so any true money that is going to be exchangeable without having to trust a third party has to be digital so there is no and, and that's a very essential monetary property for you know it's protection against seizure and um you know, having to trust a third party, that's that's a big benefit to money. So any sort of monetary form going forward is going to have to be digital in that sense. Uh, and people holding on to the physical world are just not acknowledging that the physical world creates monetary limitations that are inevitable given the fact that you can't teleport stuff. Yeah, I agree. 100%. And, and uh, to touch on your last point there where you're talking about Someone like Peter Schiff thinks that the value of gold is, is subjective, you know, that it's based on um, so, like, a, like a social agreement. Um, mm -hmm. I, would, I would completely disagree. I would push back on that and say that uh, money in and of itself is based on objective qualities of the underlying, uh, of the underlying process. Um, and markets are ruthlessly efficient. And the only reason that our markets prefer the dollar over everyone trading in gold is because of legal tender laws because people are forced to settle debts in paper rather than in gold and if the market could choose it would use the most efficient most objective money 
as its money and and the market will choose bitcoin it just will because it's, it's an objective emerging truth of ruthlessly efficient markets i agree and you know you don't want to hold like the the problem with gold is that it it has this seizure property that we've seen be exercised many times i mean in world war one that was really when the gold standard ended when all the mm-hmm. countries in europe just spent themselves into oblivion and gold was a terrible store of value because it just got taken from you um, mm-hmm. You know, you have the devaluing of the German and the French currencies. The British pound was devalued. I mean, all of it was suspended. Everyone took their gold. And the nation states did what they wanted. They didn't care about what the people wanted. They, you know, had to protect their own reputation and try to win the war. And the currency went with it. And, you know, the you know dollar stayed a little bit longer, but the dollar quickly left the gold standard in the Great Depression, right? And And that's an inevitable thing with something that's physical. It has to be... Uh, it, it is inevitably going to be seized, right? Because the only way you can access, I, I think of it as essentially we need a layer two technology whenever we're dealing with a physical money, right? When we have gold, for example, we need a way to send it. We need a way to transport it and use it in exchanges, if, especially if we're doing international business. So we plug into the banking system as like a scaling solution for gold, right? Because now we can do wire transfers and things like that. And that inevitably leads to a vulnerability, a critical vulnerability. So for the first time, we have a money that is sound at its base that also has a scaling solution, a layer two that we can plug into that doesn't require that that intermediary holding whatever we're wanting to send. And so that's, I mean, that's that's the breakthrough, but also why gold is bad money in that sense. Yeah, that's a great point. The, the expandability of software just by its nature. You know, we can have a layer two, we can have a layer three, we can have a layer four, and, and we can have horizontal layers as well. You know, we, we can go in any direction. There are no yeah. limitations. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, it, I, I had a funny thought. You mentioned World War One and uh, all the gold, you know, made, made World War One so difficult. And uh, I know like a lot of gold was lost in by the because the German U-boats were sinking uh cargo ships that were trying to move gold between countries at the time <laughs> even even back then people were losing their wealth in tragic boating accidents what a shame. <laughs> yeah no that's you know i i uh i love world war one history actually i think it's one of the most terrifying and fascinating parts of history um and i i learned a i, I really like dan carlin's podcast on it but um you know all through that is it's a classic lesson in money really because Throughout the war on both sides, you had just incredible hyperinflation because the money, the, the mm-hmm. countries are spending themselves into oblivion. It's terrible on, you know, the war front, but it's also terrible on the home front because mm-hmm. everyone at home, I mean, you're having the richest people in society. They can't afford bread all of a sudden, you know, I mean, I mean, that's how fast things change. And it just, you know, really set us up for an entire century of fiat based on that fundamental lack uh of having a money that is um impartial or uh, having a money that is uh able to be seized you know let us down that path of increasing power by nation states and the ability to carry out warfare on an unprecedented level mm-hmm. i mean that was world war one was really the first time we were able to not when i say we i mean like humans as a society was the first time that we could really have this long-lasting war that just spread out mm-hmm. for years and years. I mean, traditionally, wars were just these quick things. They're over, you know, in, in a second. And now we can go on for years because the nation-state can take control of the money and can print money for itself. Um, and I think that that's, you know, we see the dollar on, on its last legs doing the exact same thing, where we just keep printing and printing. And because of that, we can sustain a military budget that is insane in historical terms and insanely inefficient. Oh my gosh. I mean, you just imagine the amount of productive resources that are wasted on a military that is I, I don't really even know. I mean, they're printing money, they're buying things and then they're giving those to other countries that doesn't really make sense from a military standpoint, you know, like why do you print the money to buy the tanks that you then give to people who could be your enemies? I mean, it's all just silly. I know that system all too well, um, <laughs> all too well. Uh, I won't get into that. But uh, so, 
Yeah, I think we could probably do a whole episode in and of itself on uh, war and and the the money machine and the industrial war machine and uh, democracy, the god that failed by Hans Hermann Hoppe is, is a great deep dive into that topic, but we'll save that for another day. I'm about out of time. Uh, Connor, do you have any more parting words for the listeners? Any Any snippets? Well, I think that you know, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me on your podcast. It's been great. Uh, this is my first podcast, and I'm really excited to be able to talk about this. Um, I hopefully will have some more articles coming up. Uh, you know, I'm pretty busy, but I have some other ideas. I'm going to keep them under wraps for now. But um, yeah, I think that this idea of intrinsic value, uh, I guess one thing I want to end with is this. It's been kind of a criticism of the article a lot is that I use the word intrinsic value and, you know, Austrians don't believe in intrinsic value in the sense that value is subjective and, um, you know, they're right. But when the average person talks about it, they don't have that sophisticated Austrian understanding. So I went with intrinsic value in the article just, you know, partly to trigger no coiners and partly to, you know, make it so that it's a quick thing you can send to someone who doesn't have that deep Austrian background. So, yeah, I'll close with that. I totally get it. I like it. Um, so, guys, please check out Connor's article. It is, it's awesome. It's fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to uh, whatever he's got cooking up in the future. So check out his article down in the notes below. And Marty Bent, Stefan Levera, you guys better get this man on your show. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be tagging you guys. I know, you, I know both of them occasionally listen. So awesome. Get this man on your show. <laughs> All right. Uh, Connor, I will also have your, uh, your Twitter down in the description below you want to plug that real quick so people can follow you yeah you can follow me on twitter my handle is underscore connor brown underscore and that's connor with an e instead of an o at the end cool all right uh thanks so much for coming on man i love this conversation yeah thank you all right good stuff man that's a good talk all right, guys, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Connor, Marty Bent, Stefan Levera. I was serious. You guys got to get this dude on your show. He is really sharp, and I look forward to seeing what he puts out in the future. Don't forget, guys, you can subscribe to the Bitcoin Echo Chamber on pretty much any of your favorite podcasting services, Overcast, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts. There's a whole bunch. Or if you just want to find all of our episodes, you can go to BitcoinEchoChamber.com. You can find my contact email over there on the website, but it is BitcoinEchoChamber at gmail.com. You guys can also follow me on Twitter at HeavilyArmedC. That's the letter C. And my DMs are always open on Twitter as well. But, you know, Bitcoin Echo Chamber should probably cross 10,000 total views and downloads here in the next week or two. And I could not be more happy. I'm so grateful. And I love you guys. And I really appreciate, you know, people who just reach out and, and comment all the time and tell me how much they like the show. It means a lot to me, guys. So keep it coming. And I will try to keep the episodes coming for you, dropping that Bitcoin knowledge. I'll see you guys next week.